Well, it's delightful to be sitting here with Gary Williams, Dr. Gary Williams, no less, at his home in... Luton. Luton. Mm. Oh, the famous Luton. The famous Luton. The home of hat makers. That's indeed, yes. The hatters are our local football team. Yes, and, indeed. Um, hats and Vauxhall and the airport and Lorraine Chase, if you remember the <laughs> 1970s or 80s ad. I do know yes. that Luton, London... Is uh, is the name of the airport? Yes, is it London Luton? Yeah, it's a bit tenuous, isn't it? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, my, it's, it's probably nearer than Stansted. But <laughs> yeah, well, it's fantastic to be sitting here with you. And where are you based? Where are you working, Gary? I work at London Seminary, which is in Finchley in northwest London, mm -hmm. um, and I look after something called the John Owen Centre, where we try to provide ongoing help for pastors when once they've been trained at the beginning of their ministry. So the idea is that a pastor doesn't stop learning. Uh, when he finishes at seminary and we try to provide opportunities from the the small the one-off day mm. through to the the big the phd for mm. pastors to keep on studying and growing theologically fantastic and uh, was it begun by john owen <laughs> it's very old no no um no it was begun must be about 15 years ago by the seminary mm -hmm. um and began really with a master's course with Westminster Seminary, Westminster mm. Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. That mm. was the main thing at the beginning, and mm. then it's, it's grown since then. Yeah, so Westminster, I mean, London, Britain is not known for, I'm sorry to say, at, in our time, for its wealth of uh, theological seminaries, mm. teaching orthodox, conservative, biblical, evangelical theology. Mm. So um, London Seminary, what's the, what's the provenance of London Seminary? London Seminary was started in the 70s um, and largely under the inspiration of Martin Lloyd-Jones. So it is a, it's a conservative, reformed, evangelical, free church seminary um, that's been training um, for comparatively small numbers of men since then. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, it's not, a, it's not a Southern Baptist seminary. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I, li I like to think of it and of the John Owen Centre as a kind of boutique rather than a high street bank. There are, you can have a sort of sausage machine approach to training. Um, but I, I like walking into the dining room at London Seminary and seeing the principal sitting talking with the students every day mm. and the fact that he's, he and the lecturers are, are accessible like that because, mm. of, because of the small scale. I've actually come to think that, that small seminaries are a good idea and that yeah. if, if it grew, the thing to do would be plant another one <laughs> um, rather than have a, 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 an ever bigger seminary, which mm. becomes, to some extent, not totally, but it gets harder to be personal, I mm. think, at that point. And do any of the teachers at uh, London Seminary have any pastoral experience? They do. So one of the distinctives of the seminary is that, the only, in fact, the only full-time staff in the main seminary are the principal and the vice-principal, and all the other lecturing is done by serving pastors who come in to teach. Mm. Um, so that's one of its big distinctives. And that, wow. that affects, therefore, the content of what they're saying, and that they'll be talking about something that happened on Wednesday. Hmm. Um, wow. Or that's something that somebody said to them on Sunday because they're they're, they're all regular preaching pastors. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, I thought that that is that's striking. Hmm. So these hmm. the subjects about which they're teaching aren't just uh, hobby horses. They yeah. have direct implications. I remember hearing. Um, uh, I think I read somewhere that um, it was by um, assistant to John Piper. He said that uh, he'd be giving Piper a lift somewhere, and Piper said uh, how astonished he was how when trying to prepare a sermon for Sunday, he would get insight as he was preparing, which uh, he, if he'd been studying, he might have required years of um, hmm. 
consideration and reflection on a subject, but when he was actually had the ambition of feeding the people of God, it was mm-hmm. as though the Lord opened doors in his understanding mm-hmm. because he was uh, he was able to he was his priority was to serve the church. Mm-hmm. So that's a striking thing. So the people in the the faculty are pastors and so on. That's right, and that, and that would be true historically as well. I think if you look at the the people who've written the most significant books, theological books in history, they've all been preaching every week, if mm. not if not more. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, I say this as somebody who doesn't, actually, yeah. but, but the, the striking thing is that an Augustine or a Luther, you know, the, the, and actually the extraordinary rates of preaching, some of them seven times a week as standard um, for, for, for a Luther or a Calvin, it would be around that. Mm. Um, and, and yet they managed to write all these books, mm. um, but they, they're therefore completely informed by that yes. regular pastoral ministry. Yeah, yeah. My brother is always very amused by the story of uh, when uh, Calvin was kicked out of Geneva. Mm. I think he was partway through uh, preaching on Acts. He comes back into Geneva and just says, okay, open your Bibles. (laughs) As I was saying. (laughs) Yes, that's great, isn't it? Minor inconsideration. Apparently the the pastors in the Reformation in Geneva were saying to... um, to Calvin, they were pleading with him not to do so much pastoral work mm. or not to be going on the doors through the congregation because they mm. wanted to protect the man from too much, which is, mm. yeah, seems quite healthy. Yes. It does, and there, there is a history of, of well-known reformed um, pastors and theologians who in later life have looked back and said, hmm, I wish I had not pushed myself when I was younger, isn't there, you know, the, the flog the horse to the Lord gave me a horse and I flogged it to death. Was that Machain, I think, said that? Oh, really? And, and um, Owen, John Owen certainly looked back and said, he, he thought he would in the long term have been more productive had he pushed himself less as a student and, and worked shorter hours, um, mm. which is an interesting thought. Yeah. We live in a, a, a self-protective age, which is very concerned for, for, for those kinds of questions. But there are, there are well-known people in the history of the church who look back and say, hmm, should have done that differently. And what they're saying is I should have paced myself better. Wow. Um, That's mm. striking. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So, um, how did you come to uh, the, the gospel yourself? How mm. did you come to rejoice in the gospel yourself? Mm. I grew up in a, a happy, moral, um, in a conventional kind of way, um, but not a Christian home. Um, and I think I'd probably been to church about five, ten times by the time I was um, in the sixth form, you know, sort of compulsory prep school services at Christmas or something, and, and not much more than that. Um, and then I'd, I was looking for A-levels to do, and I decided to do English and history, which I had some sort of vague competence in, but I couldn't think of anything else I had any competence in, and was about to sign up for economics, and um, really liked one of the compulsory once-a-week RE lessons that we had at school. Mm. I hadn't done religious studies for GCSE or A-level as it was. I was in that crossover between the two. And um, so it was really like the teacher. So I said to him after this compulsory lesson, what's this subject like for for A-level. And he said, oh, it's great, you should do it. So I said, okay, I will. So I signed up for religious studies A-level without a clue about what it was, but knowing that I liked the teacher. <laughs> and it turned out to be half the syllabus um, going through John's Gospel for two years. Wow. And the other half studying the Reformation. Gracious me. Um, so now, now our essay level is all philosophy and ethics, but uh, I think you probably could still do that kind of syllabus, but nobody does. But in those days, it was more common to do a you know, Bible book. So we sat through the whole of the lower six, going through John's Gospel verse by verse, Gosh. with this teacher giving us a, a commentary on it, and in the other half of the syllabus being taught by two other Christians, um, Luther, the story of Luther, Calvin, you know, my first job was to read Roland Bainton on Luther, Good biography. Gracious. and Amazing. So this gave me 
I would always have called myself a Christian because I was you know, sort of English and, and a bit traditional and would have thought, yeah, I'm a Christian. But all I would have understood by that was that, that I meant I was a theist. So I had, I had no idea about why Jesus came or what he did in, in his death and resurrection until reading John's Gospel, which obviously gave me a pretty good idea. Um, and so I came to understand the Gospel through, through doing RSA level as an academic subject. And then one of the teachers offered confirmation classes. And I had a, an awareness that one of my friends used to go to the school communion service and, and take communion. And I had a sense I couldn't because I wasn't confirmed in the Church of England. So I thought, well, I should do this. I'm, you know, I'm English. I should get confirmed. So I went along to these confirmation classes, mainly with boys younger than me, because I was then in the, in the sixth form. Um, and it was in those classes that, that one of the teachers said, um, you're going to stand up and make these promises about following Christ um, and turning from the devil and repentance and things. Um, can you make them? Um, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what this is how you become a Christian. Where do you stand? And so I was converted through that. Um, and I think that's why um, the study of theology and being a Christian have, have always come together for me, because I uh, unusually perhaps was converted through studying theology. There are plenty of sad stories of people who've, who've been damaged by studying theology, um, but I actually became a Christian through it. Hmm. Um, so it seemed an obvious thing to me to, to go to university and study theology hmm. um, because it had been how I was converted. I thought this would be a great thing and it would just carry on my spiritual growth. That's, a, that's another story because it wasn't quite that simple, um, not being taught by, in, you know, entirely by Christians as I'd been at school. Um, mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I was, I was conscious when I heard the gospel. I, I think I had a fairly sensitive conscience. I was conscious of being a sinner. I knew I'd done things wrong. I knew I was doing things wrong. And I knew that if there was a God who judged me by what the Bible said, I was in trouble. Um, and it seemed, therefore, simply to be astonishingly good news that he'd sent his son uh, to pay the price so that I could be forgiven um, hmm. and that he was still um, interested in, in me, um, even though I was like that, as a, you know, as a sort of guilty, conscienced 17-year-old. Um, hmm. I, I, I knew this was good news immediately. Hmm. Um, so I, as soon as I heard it, really, through studying John's Gospel and the Reformers, I believed it. Hmm. Um, Gosh, that's extraordinary! What a, what, a, what an extraordinary diet for an A level. Yes, to be, John and uh, yes, and, and and did you keep up with the teachers who uh, who taught you then? I, yes, indeed, indeed, in different ways. In fact, I met one of them from Mill last week. Uh -huh. um, so that was the first time for a long time that I'd seen him. So one of the others came to a study day I did oh, really? a couple of years ago, which was lovely. And I had a letter from another one. Um, a couple of years ago, so yeah, loosely, but but yes, to different degrees, kept in touch with them. Gosh. Oh, extraordinary! Mm. And then you and then you went on to study uh, theology at yes. uh, a degree uh, level. Yeah, I did. Yeah, so so I, I went to Oxford, where two of those teachers had been um, to to read theology, thinking this would be you know more of the same. I mean, it wasn't more of the same. Mm. Um, but I was very grateful that I'd been taught by them at A level, because, for instance, in the New Testament side, we'd been introduced to Rudolf Bultmann um, as this this guy who really got it totally wrong um and he said these crazy things like you can't use modern medicine and electric light bulbs and still believe in the miraculous world of the new testament which is almost a it's me butchering a quotation it's almost a quotation from bultman so we'd been introduced to him by christian a-level teachers as well why would you ever think that um and so i was protected to some extent i think going up to study theology largely at the hand of, of liberal christians who were very hostile to the biblical, biblical teaching and um, so that helped, but, but it was a, because it was largely a defensive exercise, it was a fairly miserable experience, I would say. There were one or two exceptions in terms of my tutors who, were, who rescued the whole experience for me, most mm. notably Oliver O'Donovan, 
mm. I'm an evangelical ethicist who's mm. professor there, who, who probably shouldn't have taught me. Professors don't really teach undergraduates very much, but my main tutor arranged, he said, he's, a, he's an evangelical like you, so I'll go get him to teach you ethics. And that was, it was an absolute breath of fresh air and really mm. rescued for me the whole experience of studying theology with, with mm. one or two others. But mainly it was, um, did anybody who the Bible says wrote a book of the Bible actually write it or not? I, you know, I, I ended up with a fairly clear sense of why I didn't hold a liberal view of the Bible, but not much else out of the degree. For instance, mm. my study of Isaiah was all preoccupied by the question of, of when and by whom it was written, mm. and I knew very little of what was actually in it. Um, <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and, you know, it wasn't, it, the, there were so many preliminary questions to go through before you got to the theology of the text that I mm. tended to get waylaid in. The, mm. And probably it might have been better for me to leave some of those questions and just Actually, what I should have done was to study the historical theology. A friend of mine pretty much majored on the historical theology courses, and they're, they're less, there's less at stake in a sense normally. Um, it's not to pretend that they're neutral, but, they're, but they're a, the battle isn't raging quite as much around what Luther said or Augustine said. Or, mm. And I should have probably done more of that and, and not done so much of the biblical stuff because I didn't really learn much from it. I mm. feel I'm, I'm playing catch-up on biblical studies now. A lot of my time now I spend reading biblical studies books, actually, mm. although mm. it's not what I teach mainly because I think that's, that's where I'm lacking because mm. I didn't get any of that. Yeah, um, this is exactly it. William Taylor at um, St. Helens said to me, he said, uh, he said the, the only thing he learned from Cambridge was why he's not liberal, yeah. which I thought yeah. was uh, disappointing. So mm. I do a, we did tours of the uh, British Museum, mm-hmm. and I went on a tour of the British Museum once with a guy mm. who, um, mm. the conclusion of the tour was, and now we know that Daniel should be in the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of ironic because I never thought he shouldn't be. So, yes. so I came out thinking, what, there are some people who think that? You know? yeah. yeah. So what we do instead is... Uh, Try and show people the implications of the gospel in the archaeology that we're looking at. There. Mm, so, yeah. so you came. But the interesting thing is, I suppose you got you were. It's like you were prepared before you went in by people who saw Bultman for what he was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of similar to when we some of the guys who kind of try and pull apart the Bible from the archaeology. They always look rather desperate. Mm, mm, <laughs> they mm, say, mm. "Well, look, we know this can't be." And then you just a few stones later, you realize, oh. It's yes, exactly as yes, the Bible said. Famous reversals of things for which there is no archaeological evidence. Oops, and then somebody digs something up. Yeah, and you think, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Why, yeah. You devote, why did you devote so much time to trying to prove, you know, your, your position against a God who has showed his love in such an awesome mm, way? Mm, mm, <laughs> it is, mm, um, yeah, unfortunately, mm. uh, all too sad a circle. So um, now you you mentioned historical theology, and mm. that's something into which you've moved more since uh, Oxford. What, where did you go from Oxford? I, well, I then went to be a school teacher. Actually, I, I thought um, having been converted through the witness of school teachers, what a great thing to be! I'll go and I'll go and be one. And um, one of the teachers in particular had, had taken a lot of people to, to summer camps, and quite a number of people had been converted. And I thought, well, what a wonderful thing! I'll I'll go and do that. And I discovered I didn't have a similar kind of I don't know what it was. Um, it's interesting how some, some teachers are like that and some aren't, and it turned out I wasn't. I enjoyed being a teacher. Um, I did it for a PGC and then taught for a year back at my old school. Um, mm-hmm. But having left theology fairly fed up, in fact, I'd withdrawn an application from master's course, while I was doing the teaching pretty quickly, actually, even while I was doing the PGC, I began to think, no, that, no I, I need to go back and do more. And I had a sense of um, of the need, I think, in this country, especially a lot of the good conservative books that I was reading were coming from America. Mm. There weren't many evangelical theologians around in this country. Mm. And I had an increasing sense of, I should go and 
go back to it. And so even during the PGC, I spent one of the half terms in the, the University Library at Cambridge reading the book that I ended up doing my doctorate on, um, hmm. which Oliver Donovan had rec- recommended as a, as a possible project. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so I went off to be a school teacher for a couple of years, teaching the Reformation, and then, and then went back to do a master's at Oxford in Reformation theology, mm-hmm. um, and then doctorate on Hugo Grotius's Doctrine of the Atonement. So he wrote a book on the Atonement in 1617, so it's just post-Reformation. Hmm. Um, but did, did three years studying that one book. Because um, by then, actually, well, actually, from fairly early on, from, the, from my first term as an undergraduate, I decided my long-term work would be to write something on the Atonement. My first paper as an undergraduate had been on the atonement. I'd had a, a tutor who was vehemently opposed to the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. A tutorial was meant to last an hour. After an hour and 45 minutes, he, he walked to the window and turned his back on me and looked out of the window and said, well, Gary, I'm very disappointed that you still believe these things. Gracious. And I'd, I'd hunted around for stuff to read, for good stuff to read on the atonement and struggled much beyond biblical studies. I'd found Packer's well-known lecture, What Did the Cross Achieve? I'd found The Cross of Christ by John Stott. I'd found um, R.L. Dadney's Christ Our Penal Substitute from the 19th century, pretty helpful. But there was, it seemed to me this was a central evangelical tenet. All my evangelical elders were telling me, this is really, really important. We need to fight for it. And I think, so where are the books? Um, biblical studies was better with the work of people like Leon Morris, but there was a distinct lack. So I thought... That's what I must do. I, I, will, I will aim um, in the course of my life, if the Lord spares me, to write a, a, a long, serious book on the atonement from, from an evangelical perspective. Um, so then, yeah, so then, then specialised in the doctorate on Grotius, I said to Oliver Donovan, I want, this is what I want to work on long term, is the atonement. Is there anyone good I could look at? And Oliver um, was and is an enthusiast for, for studying Grotius, and so he said, well, have you read Grotius's book on it? And I said who. Um, and so then I spent this half term in, in the university library just reading an old translation of it um, and thought, wow, he raises so many of the central questions. I'll, I'll do that. So it's, yeah, then historical theology for the masters and the doctorate. Hmm. And then taught church history and historical theology at Oak Hill for 10 years, um, moving more to a bit more in the doctrine direction. So I, I would say I've probably moved more in, in, the, in the direction of doctrine. Though I think I'm probably I think I increasingly feel like a, a, a jack of all trades, uh, sort of um, amateur in, in all of them, because because as I say, I think actually I need to be reading more biblical studies and mm. working on the languages. And I think specialisation has its merits, but it also, if you want to write something theological, um, a sort of creative, generative theological project, then being too specialised is a bad thing because you are going to have to do exegesis in yeah. the original languages, you are going to have to think systematically, you're going to have to consult historically. So we probably all ought to be trying to make small advances on all fronts, I think. Yes, mm. but also it seems to me that the uh, scientific approach to these things being the uh, antithesis and the thesis, and you, you, I, I've decided this now I want to go and prove it, that doesn't sit nas- naturally well with uh, a theological inquiry, which says, I want to learn what it says, mm. <laughs> and then doors will open as you're going. Mm. So presumably, mm. I imagine you've, uh, while you come and saying, I want to understand atonement, you will have learned things which have implied you need to learn more things, and they've opened other doors as you go. Yes, and the problem with that is that it stops you actually writing it, because you think, <laughs> well, I know, I've changed my mind about a number of things, and the whole approach to the book has been turned upside down in, the, uh, in, the, in that around about... It must be about 12 years ago, I suddenly discovered that Reformed theology historically has been covenant theology. 
Um, and I realized I didn't really know anything about the covenants very much and certainly wasn't teaching doctrine covenantally. Um, and so I began to immerse myself in, in historic Reformed covenant theology, of, largely of the, the sort of 16th and 17th centuries, but also all the way through, really. Um, and, and so, yeah, so you look back on that and think, so actually now I think this, that I should give an account of the atonement in a covenantal context. Hmm. Um, so the book's going to look quite different. And, and then hmm. just things like, you know, it, it should be one of, the, one of the things I would agree with Tom Wright's critique of some evangelical theology is that it's not, it's not rooted enough in the history of Israel or hmm. the text of the Gospels. So how can you write a book about the atonement which doesn't major on Israel, given that so much of the Bible does, mm. and to which the ministry of Jesus appears to be largely irrelevant until the moment when he dies. Mm. Um, so I think that that's a good point. So, so again, that requires being immersed in, in study of the Gospels mm. and in an understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament with Israel and the, and the, and the covenant of grace with Israel through the Old Testament. And so, yeah, so that makes you slightly hesitant about actually writing anything down, because you think if there have been a few revolutions along the way already, then maybe there'll be some more. But there, yes, there, yes, there yes. comes the point when you're in your mid-40s where I think you probably have to say, no, no, now is the time to start writing. And <laughs> you don't have the luxury anymore of waiting before yeah, yes, you might yes, yes, yes. change your mind about something. Yeah, mm. yeah. I similarly uh, did uh, classics at... Uh, mm. University and uh, reading the New Testament and the ancient world through the eyes of a classicist, mm -hmm. you realise that mm -hmm. when they're talking about oh, all kinds of uh, variables, slavery, for example, you, you mm -hmm. see it through a classicist's eyes and you realise, yes, the right perspective there is, um, yeah, is useful and illuminating and responsible, frankly, because mm -hmm. you, you have mm -hmm. to see it. If you're not seeing it accurately, you can see it. You don't see it, yeah, if you don't see it historically you're not seeing it for, with every facet and we should be open to to reading the text better yeah so um, now you're you're someone who's read historical theology of course grotius now he's writing in dutch is he no latin oh. uh, some of his lessons are from dutch but very few nearly nearly all of it's in latin uh -huh. yeah now how many languages have you had to learn <laughs> <laughs> well I'm, I'm learning i think is an ongoing project isn't it yeah. uh, well the doctorate say so for the masters there were there were exams on on reformation texts in latin so i had to do it then I did it at prep school, dropped it when I was 14. I wish I'd done what you did. I should have done classics. And if anybody came to me and said, I'm thinking I might be called to serve as a theologian long term, I'd say, well, then read classics um, at university and then come to theology in a Christian seminary afterwards and do it hmm. properly. Um, hmm. um, but So that would have been a much better idea. Um, hmm. But anyway, so um, Latin, I mean, you have to read articles and things in French and German, but that's kind of, that's reading something slowly and with a dictionary is not too tricky. Mm -hmm. um, um, but the main, the main language is Latin for that kind of research. Mm. Mm. I heard, do you think, is it, is it accurate? I heard someone say that um, Martin Bucer, all the time he was living in Cambridge, uh, he was living among British people, English people, and he didn't speak any English. He did everything in Latin. I'm sure it would have been true. So it would have been, um, it would have been Oxford students would have been banned. Well, so I think I'm right in saying that when John Owen was at Oxford, they were not allowed to speak English to one another. Gracious um, Because that was the brilliance of Latin, was that it was a universal language, so that um, Martin Bucer could come to England and teach, and everybody could understand him, and, mm. and uh, Owen could write something in Latin which somebody in Geneva could read. It, mm. it, it, was, the, uh, it was the successful Esperanto. Well, it wasn't Esperanto because it wasn't invented, but you know, mm. the, that dream of a universal language mm. um, was real, you know, the kind of thing you see now with Chinese universities teaching in English. Um, well, that, that's, what, that's what Latin was like, mm. more, more so in Europe, um, that, that all, all the learned people 
spoke it and wrote it. Gracious man. Um, so that, that wouldn't surprise me if that were true. Right. Mm. So now, has, has Grotius uh, ended up as a hero? or uh, Who are people who, to whom you go back? Who are people who <laughs> yeah, warm uh, you and encourage your heart? Grotius' book on the atonement, I think, is, is, is good. And, and he is credited with having invented a new theory of the atonement, the governmental theory. And part of the conclusion of my thesis was that he didn't really invent that at all. He defended a fairly mainstream account of a penal substitutionary atonement. So I... I I, I appreciated the book in that sense. Um, more broadly speaking, he, he wasn't um, a professional theologian. He was a, a more of a professional jurist, prudent, a lawyer, a philosopher of law, and, and a politician. And but he was a, he was a polymath, really. Um, but he was an Arminian um, in his days, involved in the, the political struggles in the Dutch Church. Um, so I, I wouldn't really agree with him on those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, who would I go back to? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Um, mm. It's it's a um, uh, it's a bit like saying, "What would you rescue from a burning house?" Yes, um, you want to yeah. grasp lots of things, I, and I partly that I'm not just trying to be awkward, but that would partly be my answer: was I don't want to have to choose one person. Um, there is merit in the idea of adopting someone. If you're if you're a theologian or a pastor, I like the idea, and I've said to people, I recommend you adopt someone who you make your companion through life. I like that idea. You know, adopt a, a Calvin or a Luther or an Edwards or an Owen or someone like that and get to know them really well and read biographies about them and read, chip your way through their works and there's merit going deep in one person. So I like that. However, I do also think that, that you know, we believe in the sufficiency of the Bible, not the sufficiency mm. of any one theologian. Mm. So I, 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 I think we need to be, is it magpies? Is that the right analogy? We need, we need to be Mm. stealing from different people and borrowing and learning from lots of different people. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, if I had to go with one, it probably would be Calvin, I think. Um, and he himself I, did that. Yeah, he did. And, and, I, and I like the fact that there's been a long quest for the centre of Calvin's theology. You know, people write books and, and doctorates about what is the centre of Calvin's theology. And I think there is a right answer to that, which is that there isn't one. The centre of Calvin's theology is, is to be biblical. He is simply trying to teach us what the text says, whatever that is. It's, his system is not ruled by any single doctrine. It's ruled by um, attentive submission to the text of Scripture. Mm. Um, so that might be why I would take him, and, and there's a humanness about him as well. Mm. Um, though he doesn't answer all the questions, I think actually, you know, I fast forward a hundred years in Geneva and go to Francis Turretin and his institutes, and you get answers to more theological questions that you might have. So if, if, if I felt on my desert island I was going to have to answer lots of questions or be thinking about lots of theological questions, I, I might favour someone later. But just because a hundred years on after the Reformation, they've, they've got to questions which the Reformers were only at the beginning of. Mm. Mm. Yes, and he, yeah. Yes, this is a striking example because he, yes. He himself is uh, clearly in debt to Augustine, Bernard Clairvaux, and all these Indeed, guys. Yes. And of course, he doesn't mention Luther by name, but he in his in the Institutes at least. But in Aquinas, he always talks about the bookman, mm. the fools that they were. You know, mm, <laughs> these mm, critical comments mm, about the mm, bookman. You think, mm. who are the bookmen? <laughs> but, uh, mm, mm, the scholastics. Yeah, and, but then but then he favours quite a lot of them, and, and, and not the bookman, the schoolman. Is yeah, the schoolman. It's much more. Yes, his relation to scholasticism is more mixed than some of the rhetoric suggests, I think, isn't it? Mm. And Luther as well, so it's scathing things about scholastics and the influence of Aristotle on them. But mm. actually, mm. when you look at what they do, and then a good example of that is Calvin is happy to employ the distinction between accidents and substance, which is crucial to the medieval Catholic defence of transubstantiation, the distinction between the substance of the, the bread and wine, which changes into the body and blood of Christ, and the accidents, the sort of outward phenomenal appearance taste of them, which remains 
the same. And they're, they're hugely critical of this distinction when they're writing about the Roman Catholic theology of the Mass. But then pick it up and use it elsewhere. Um, so there's, wow. there's, 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 there's the relationship to scholasticism is a bit more subtle than it appears from some of the, hmm. the rhetorical moments. Yes, it, yeah. Yes, uh, sometimes it's uh, the pressure of the moment is uh, it mm. brings out all kinds of diamonds. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes, and uh, the in terms of encouraging devotional guy, people who have blessed your heart and encouraged you, mm. um, would there be someone who you found especially? I mean, I, I, Calvin, I find fascinating because there's a sense of. Um, tension that he's he's it's like his his bow is pulled tight and there's something beautiful something inspiring about that and it's almost like the one end of that is in the fear of god and frankly that seems to be the case with him and you think that's there's something attractive and and Mm. inspiring about that side so i wouldn't i'm not looking for necessarily fluffy Mm. but guys Mm. who have been Mm. inspiring Mm. i do i mean i both Luther and Calvin, I've read a fair bit on on um, suffering and the cross in the Christian life, and and find both both of them extremely helpful on that. That sense of the of the total sovereignty of God, that the answer to our difficulties in life is not to try to blame somebody else for them, right? Um, but to recognise that they're under God's control. Yes. Um, so I do find Luther and Calvin both very helpful on, on the cross in the Christian life. Mm. Um, you some spoke about that century, at EMA, didn't you? Yeah, I spoke about Luther at EMA and, and, and wrote about Calvin on it in my book, Silent Witnesses. There's a chapter on, on suffering and what Calvin says about it. Um, so I, li- I like the, the humanity of the, of the two reformers in that sense, mm. um, which you get less of in Owen, for example. Though Owen is brilliant and I love reading him, but you don't get the same humanity there. Um, and um, some of the 19th century reformed writers as well so andrew bonner on the psalms is a lovely book i find that very mm. helpful devotion he finds christ everywhere in the psalms which i think mm. is right mm-hmm. um hugh martin on the atonement writes amazingly beautifully on the atonement in the, in the 19th century mm. um just a, a wonderful use of language to evoke the magnitude of, of what christ did and mm. what and what it meant for him and his experiences mm. um as does as and, and jonathan edwards i find very you know, because Edwards is so conscious of the affections and their importance and, and deliberately tried to stir affection in his readers hmm. um, in, in a lot of his work. Yes. Um, I, I, I think I find that very helpful. Yeah, fascinating, not least because um, Edwards seems to have been um, naturally dour. Uh, in terms of the fact, you know, he's the, what is the 11th of the children, the first son, and he seems to have been quite removed. Mm. But it seems he's got this, he adores his wife, and he seems mm. to have this, he, he rejoices in the beauty of nature. Mm. And he's got, he recognises, he recognises the real affections, a uh, mm. real conversion has is in the real affections mm. and is in You meet some people sometimes, don't you, and they seem quite aloof and cool and distant and then as you get to know them better you realise there's an awful lot going on there. Yeah. And I wonder yeah. if Edwards was probably a bit like that. Yes. Yes. Mm. Bloke at the um Westminster Conference last year spoke. It reminded me of what they said about McShane, that when he got up in the pulpit um, people wept because mm. it was clear that he'd been with God, mm. and uh, that was what was striking about this guy. There was uh, there was nothing frivolous. It mm. was impressive, mm. and uh, yes, you, you you see that in some of these people mm. who still speak though they're no longer with us. Now, someone who's you've been inside academia, you've also been in church circles, you've been teaching, and you've known people who have been teaching for some time. What is some what's some advice that you've picked up on your way, as broad as you like? Okay. 
<laughs> like um, in in our time, there are various phenomena which are which you might say, oh no, this this happened before in other times. <laughs> sure, <laughs> and, yes, and yes. this is how they dealt with it. And so on. Yes, well, there's lots of those, um, to, and to some extent, it'd be the same whether somebody's thinking of a of a more theological ministry or more pastoral ministry. I mean, any is ideally both, but um, I think one common problem people have is they try to run before they can walk. So occasionally one of our seminary students will come and, and knock on my door and say, I'm interested in doing the Masters in Theology, which we, which we have with Westminster. Um, and they're, they're just in term one of the seminary course. Um, and they, they want to see if they can start the Masters maybe at the same time to get on. And I often find myself saying, no, um, what you should do is you should do a really, really thorough job of what you're doing at the moment. Mm. So if you if you come and say, Ah, but I'm finding it a bit basic. I want to press on to the master's course. I want to know, could you tell me the content of every chapter of the Old Testament? Um, not that I could myself. Um, but why, why be so keen to move into master's level work when actually at the moment you have the opportunity to do this introductory year of work really, really well? And I wish that somebody had, I wish that my theological education had been totally different and that somebody had drilled me in the content of the Bible had drilled me in the languages, had drilled me in the basics, had drilled me in the biblical texts that, that teach major doctrines and things, so that rather than going on quickly and specialising in, in, in one 17th century Dutchman, I'd spent more time learning the basics really, really thoroughly. Mm. So I often think that people need to slow down and master the basics before they move on. Whereas most people want to get on and do the next thing and the next course, and they want to get on to the PhD or whatever it is. And no, 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 do a really thorough job of learning the basics. One of the things I introduced when teaching church history at Oak Hill was I began to make people memorize dates, a spine of, of church history um, expressed in a series of dates, which is terribly out of fashion, of course. Um, uh, but it, what I realized after teaching for a number of years was that, that the students I was producing had written one really good essay on one subject, but I could ask them about some of the other stuff I taught them, and they wouldn't have a clue about it, because it had gone, you know, gone like this. They'd listened to it at the time, and it doesn't stick. So I began to make them memorize dates and definitions of major terms and things and labels for different movements and heresies, just the basics, because I realized that they weren't actually taking away the basics. Wow. Um, so I would say slow down, drill yourself in the basics, be patient, don't mm. hurry. Mm. Um, in terms of the second aspect of your question, uh, have we been here before on a thing? Um, I, re I really think we have been here before, and I think it's on the languages. Um, it's reckoned, I think it might be David Daniel who says this, the biographer of Tyndale, uh, maybe somebody else, but somebody reckons that um, on the eve of Tyndale's work, in the whole of, of England, there were two people who knew Biblical Hebrew. Yes, he does say that. Um, and my fear is that we're heading there again. And, and the reason for that is it seems to me that, we, that, that lots of people are taking shortcuts into ministry and they're, they're doing the training which is the most convenient and cheap, but which doesn't always take them into the Biblical languages. So mm. if you choose to train for gospel ministry by night school, basically or by weekend school, what you probably won't do, there may be exceptions to this, but what you probably will end up not doing is Greek and Hebrew, because actually Greek and Hebrew, there are some people who can do it anyway, because they've got the discipline to do a language by themselves and they know how to do it. But for most people, that's not true. The only way anybody actually gets it is if somebody sits them down every week for two hours and tests them and makes them learn it. Um, and that often doesn't happen in these sort of night school approaches to ministry. Um, 
that could foster a situation actually where we were 50 years ago. You know, 50 years ago, there were, there were hardly any evangelical commentaries. And now it's not, the Americans are still doing it, so we'll be, the Americans will be fine. Um, but in this country, I think we could end up with significant chunks of, of, of the ministry um, done by people who can't engage with the text in an original language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that takes us back to something not as bad as, but something akin to the late medieval church. Mm-hmm. Um, and the risk then is you're totally at the hands of whoever tells you what this means. Mm-hmm. And they, could, you know, they might be right or might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a worry I have. I, 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 I agree with the, the motivation behind night school being keep you in the local church. I, I think theological training that takes you out of the local church is, is wrong-headed. Um, but it still needs to be done properly, and it needs to be done um, fully. And I think that means learning both languages. That, sh- that should be that should be automatic for anyone preparing for, for gospel ministry. And mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. that's dying away. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and the, the the pungency of the original languages. Uh, also, the uh, I think it's a I think Piper was helpful because of course he taught Greek hmm. at Bethel, I think, in Minneapolis or Minnesota at least, and he said one of the useful things, and this is a guy who taught Greek, he says, mm. is it forces you to read the text slowly. So it's not as though he works up, wakes up and says, you know, erkomai ente, I mean, he's not speaking it fluently, mm. He's, mm. but it takes him time. Yeah. But that time, I find yes. again and again, is time where if you were just reading in English, you might panic, because I've read this a thousand times, yes. and I know what it says. But when you read it in the Greek, it's like you're reading it for the first time. Yes, and, and it's not so much that... Because you know, some people say, I can get from the commentaries, from the experts who do know the Greek, everything I need. But it's not so much about that. It's not about this this one thing which you need to get, which right. you can get from a commentary. Yeah, As you right. say, it's, it's, the, it's the getting inside the mind of the author mm-hmm. in the words that he wrote yes, um, yes. and doing it slowly and yeah. in a disciplined way. It, that's exactly what it is. It's that that close engagement with the text, which which if you are um, dependent on a translation, you are you are to some extent... Um, engaging with the uh, only at the level of the decisions that the translator has made. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, and the Calvinian point you're making is you've got to be broken over the text. Hmm. If you don't know the original language in which it was written, it's less of a likelihood that you would uh, that you would feel. I was listening to uh, Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson talking about uh, uh, lewd fellows of the baser sort, as we're told <laughs> in King James version. Lewd fellows of the baser, which the ESV translates as rabble. But when you read these words um, in the in the Greek, and you think it's just it's the time it takes to look up that word, you know, because mm. no one who knows even you know people who have Greek, they don't know that word immediately. They have to look mm, it up. Mm, mm. By the time you got there, you thought about some of them who you saw on the street recently, and, <laughs> and you realise it's held your attention. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, mm. yeah, and which mm. gives the opportunity to actually derive something valuable, mm. yeah, and to be to be read by the text, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. So to what are you up to at the moment, uh, Gary? Right now. Oh, what's, um, so, what's exciting? What so, are you up to? Yes, well, so um, summer months, they're never as long as you hope they're going to be, um, but there's, there's a bit of a chance to get ahead in preparation, so I'm preparing two things at the moment. One is our, we have our own conference each September, and I'm doing a, a paper on, we're doing with two brothers in Genesis, and I've got Cain and Abel. So I've been spending a lot of time in Genesis 4, um, which is absolutely fascinating. There's a mountain of literature on it, um, it's it's paradigmatic of human history as a history of violence, 
quite a lot of secular writers write about human history as a history of violence. Um, what do you do with that violence? Um, what do you do when somebody has committed a crime and killed somebody else, let alone his brother? Um, do you strike back? If you don't strike back, then what are you left with? Well, you're left with the cry of blood. You're left with the cry of Abel's blood, which cries out for, for justice, for retribution. How does secular society answer that? Where, where is that going to come from in secular society? And, and interestingly, you have in some uh, um, ancient literature, especially in, in um, the Aristia, which is a, a trilogy of plays by Aeschylus, the same language of the cry of blood from the ground. And what's the answer? Well, somebody strikes back. So Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter, so his wife kills him. Mm. And then her son kills her. You've got this spiral of violence. Yes. violence. What is going to end this spiral? How, there's, there's no answer. Um, and yet Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than, than, than Abel. Um, so I'm, I, I've been immersed in that, which is very stimulating um, and stretching. And then we do study days for pastors, and my new one is on the Christian and the law. What's the place of the law in the Christian life, which is obviously a huge question. Our last one was on what was the law for Israel. Was it a worksy covenant or a, or a gracious covenant? This one is now, how do I as a Christian relate to the law? So it's a day for pastors. How do they preach a law text when they're preaching the Old Testament? Um, and there's, there's obviously mountains of stuff to read on that. So I, I roll that out. I think I teach it in late September for the first time. So the clock is ticking on getting that day ready. Hmm. Um, so I'm just wading through lots of different people writing about that at the moment. Mm -hmm. Did you ever read Lloyd-Jones' Romans on these things? I haven't actually. No, there well, you go. That's an admission. He's electrifying on that whole stuff. Ah. But that's, mm. uh, that's mm. uh, I think he's unusual as well. But uh, anyway. Mm. Yeah, well, these are pungent things. Superb. Have you ever seen a performance of the Oresteia? I've indeed yeah. seen the same one twice. There was an, there's an amazing rewrite of it by Robert Icke, who's a contemporary, very gifted contemporary playwright. And it was performed um, in London, um, and um, it was breathtaking. Mm. And really interestingly, ends. So at the end of Aeschylus' version, um, Orestes is just sort of let off okay. <laughs> by one of the gods. Um, and at the end of, of Ike's version, the same thing happens, but then he stands on the stage and he just says, what do I do now? Gosh. What do I do now? Wow. And so he has a sense that this letting off is not an adequate answer. Mm. Um, but there was, yeah, there was, and there was another one in the Globe cover, which I didn't see a couple of years ago. And then there was one in Manchester. There was a bit of a run of Greek drama. Mm. Um, so I did see one of those. Yeah, it's extraordinary how they... they these Greek things, they really get to the crux, of, or they, they, mm. they, they take you to the crux of some of these questions, don't they? And you, you, they force you to consider how you would answer them. And unwittingly, they take you, they point you to the crux, therefore, to they the are, cross. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the, um, without, without intending it, they set up questions which they can't answer. And, and actually, the, the drama sometimes exposes the, the inadequacy of their own answer to that question. And mm. you go looking elsewhere. Yeah. Mm. Amen. Well, what a superb place for us to end. Because, uh, yes, mm. we do know mm. about the Crocs. Mm. Amen. Mm. Well, thank you very much indeed for your time, it's Gary. Thank you. And we're thrilled to think of the opportunities for pastors and people wanting to continue to learn and to, uh, to uh, be encouraged and stimulated in the truth that you're doing at the John Owen Centre mm. and London Seminary. Which both have websites, do they? They do indeed, <laughs> yes. The, the obvious names on them. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank sir. you.